Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. All right, well, good morning. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where we will be this morning as we are finishing up preaching through the Lord's Prayer. Uh, This is week four of the Lord's Prayer. The last uh, four Sundays, we've been trying to have an intentional time of prayer. And so uh, through that, we've been trying to pray more during our service as well as to preach through the Lord's Prayer and allow Jesus to to teach us how to pray. Uh, Next week, we will have a special message from Dad, as well as Dad and Joni will be sharing some as they return from El Salvador late last night. So it is good to have you guys back. Uh, Yeah, we can give it up. They got back late last night, so we haven't even had time to really talk much or hear how the trip was. But next week will be a special Sunday. Dad's going to Dad's gonna preach, and then they're also going to share uh, what all God is doing there in El Salvador. So you don't want to miss next week. And then two weeks from today, we're going to start preaching through the book of Mark. So that's where we're going next. If you want to be reading, we're going through the gospel of Mark, just verse by verse through Mark. Probably most of 2018, we will be in the book of Mark. But this morning, we are finishing up the Lord's Prayer. One last look at the Lord's Prayer. And last week, we looked at verse 11. And we looked at how we are to ask God to provide, how our daily provisions and all that we have is from God. We learned that it is all received bread. And we learned that if it is received bread, then all, and if all we have has been given to us, then should we not hold all things with open hands willingly and cheerfully ready to give it all away. And then we learned of the freedom that can be experienced when we pray a prayer like this that is recognizing that God is our ultimate provider. Because when God is our ultimate provider, it frees us. Then we do not need to live life and make decisions based on fear, but we can now live life and make decisions based on faith. And it is a faith that is in a faithful God. And so verse 11 was all about asking God to provide. And this morning, we're mainly going to look at then verses 12 and 13. And in these verses, we're going to see how we are to ask God to pardon and to protect. And we're going to see how God's forgiveness and his protection will also allow us to live by faith and not to live out of fear. But before we look at those verses, I want to draw your attention real quick to verse 10, because I want to clear up some common misconceptions about what we believe and how we are to pray. So look with me real quickly at Matthew 6, verse 10. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So here's the question that I want you to think about. Why does the prayer not end with verse 10? Like, why does the prayer not stop with, your will be done? Shouldn't that be where it ends? If God is sovereign, then doesn't that mean that what is going to happen is going to happen? And so what's the point of praying about more than just your will be done? Shouldn't our prayers just be really short and sweet, right? Like, Father God, your will be done in Jesus' name. Amen. Why aren't our prayers like that? Why all this more talk of prayer? Why do we pray more than just your will be done? And you see, here is where I think we misunderstand what the Bible teaches and what we believe about the sovereignty of God. So there's this idea that if God is sovereign 
and he has ordained certain things to happen, then it doesn't matter what we do or what we pray or how we live or if we evangelize, and we shouldn't pray anything than just your will be done, okay? That thought process is describing a false idea called fatalism, okay? It is a false idea called fatalism, which says the outcome is inevitable, the end is inevitable, so the means to that end do not matter. And church, you need to know that is not true at all. That is not biblical Christianity, and that is not what the Bible teaches, and that is not what we are saying when we celebrate God's sovereignty, And I realize any time we talk about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, there's going to be a little bit of a mystery there, right? Because it is finite people trying to understand and grasp an infinite God. But I think this might make your understanding of how God works maybe just a little bit more clear, okay? Because listen, God is sovereign. He is. And God has ordained an end, but he has also ordained the means to that end, Okay, so the end that God has ordained will happen. Like God has set his affections on a people who he purchased by his blood and we, he will be our God and we will be his people and that end is coming. So yes, the end that has been ordained will occur, but he has also ordained the means to that end. He has ordained that he would work through his people to call a people to himself. He has ordained that his people would pray to him, that they would cry out to him, that they would make requests to him, that they would bring their concerns to him, that they would make intercessory prayers for their friends and family and co-workers, and that his people would proclaim of his goodness to the people around them. And so, yes, he has ordained a people to be saved, but he has also ordained the means by which those people are saved, and they are saved by faith. And it is a faith that comes through hearing the words of Christ proclaimed to them. So this false idea of fatalism says that if God has ordained the end, then the means don't matter. And the Bible says, no, God has ordained the end, but he has also ordained the means to that end for our joy and his glory. He has ordained the means to that end. And so we of all people should be excited to participate in the mission of God. We of all people who celebrate God's sovereignty should be excited to participate in evangelism and discipleship and prayer because we know in the end his mission succeeds. It is a successful mission. So yes, God has ordained an end, but he has also ordained the means to that end. And yes, it is good to pray for the will of God to be done, but we see the will of God also unfold through his people moving, working, praying, and being in constant communication with him. And so the Lord's prayer does not end in verse 10. And we looked last week at verse 11. Now we're going to look at verses 12 and 13. So go Matthew 6, verse 12. It says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Prayer connects us to the source of forgiveness and to the one who cancels our debts so that as forgiven people, we might not be fearful in going to God but that we could be faithful in going to God. 
So here we see Jesus instructing us to go to God to ask forgiveness for our debts. No one likes being in debt, right? No one likes that feeling of owing someone something. It's just not a good feeling when you're in debt or when you owe things, right? Most people don't even like to, uh, most people even like to return favors right away. Like if you do something nice for them, hey man, they want to return that favor right away. They just don't like that feeling of having to owe anyone anything. And so in December, Britt made some cookies for our neighbors, and her and the boys around Christmas time took them to our neighbors for Christmas. It was really, really nice that they did that. I, I'll be honest, I did not participate much in that, but they made the cookies, they took them out. What happened one and two days later, the doorbell rang, the neighbor was giving us something, right? Now, we have good neighbors. It's not to say they weren't already going to give us something, but I think there is something in human beings that when someone does something nice for us, right, there is that feeling, hey, we should return the favor. We don't want to have to owe anyone anything. Let's return the favor. And also, think about this. Isn't there a freeing feeling when you pay something off that you had owed money on? right? Like whether it's school loans or a car, or maybe some have had the, the privilege of even paying off a home mortgage or something like that, but there's this freeing feeling when you finally pay off a debt that you owed, because no one likes being in debt. No one likes that feeling. No one likes owing someone something. And the Bible tells us because of sin that we owe something that would have taken eternity to pay back. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That because of sin, because of our disobedience to God, which we all have disobeyed, we have all rebelled against God, the penalty or the payment for that sin is eternal separation from God. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I hear that, when I hear and I know that my rebellion against God is deserving of death and eternal separation from him, it doesn't necessarily make me want to run to God to confess my sins to him, right? It doesn't necessarily make me real eager to go ask God for forgiveness. The God who I have sinned against, who I have rebelled against in my own strength, I don't want to run to him. I want to run away from him, right? And that's what in our own strength, if left to our own strength, that is how humanity responds. We respond like Adam and Eve did when they sinned against God. God came looking for them. They responded in fear. They ran and hid and tried to cover themselves. And so too, you and I, in our own strength, we run from God and try to cover ourselves. And so you see this play out amongst humanity, trying to cover themselves, usually with some good works, right? Like we try to clean ourselves up to impress God. We try to do enough good things to counteract and balance all of the bad things we've done. And we try to work for our own righteousness or rightness. We try to work to pay off our own debt. But then we encounter God. We encounter the true and living God. We encounter a holy God, a holy, holy, holy God who is set apart and who alone is perfectly pure, complete, and good. And when we encounter that God, and when he reveals to us just how offensive and treacherous our sin really is and our rebellion really is, we realize that the penalty for that sin is too great for us to be able to pay. 
It would literally take eternity and then some just to get close to paying off that debt. Sin creates a legal debt. Sin has created a debt for humanity. And in Jesus' time when this passage was written, if you had debt, you could be put into debtor's prison. They didn't have all the bankruptcy laws and whatever that we have now, right? If you were in debt, you were put in debtor's prison until your family could work to pay it off. Or if you had debt, you could be enslaved, or you could work then as an indentured servant trying to pay off the debt that you owed. But it was typically so difficult to pay off the debt that the debt would be passed down from generation to generation, from father to son. So a son could then be enslaved and imprisoned for the debts of his father. And haven't we seen this with humanity? That one man's sin and the penalty and the debt it created has been passed down from father to son, from father to son, from generation to generation. Now, also in that Greco-Roman world, when this was written, if you had a debt, there would be a written note or a record of that debt on, uh, about all that you owed. It was either on paper or on a scroll or something like that. It was a written note of all that you owed. And because of the sin that we have inherited and because of the sinful choices we make each and every day, our record of debt keeps getting longer and longer and more and more impossible to try to pay back. But then Jesus enters into the world and the gospel is revealed. The good news that God saves sinners, that God saves debtors. And this salvation was accomplished by Jesus, who was fully God, who put on flesh, who lived the obedient life we failed to live, and willingly went to the cross to make payment for our debts. I want you guys to hear these verses from Colossians 2, 13 and 14. This is pretty cool. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses... And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So in that time, your record of debt, that piece of paper of all that you owed, when it was paid off, what they would do to signify it was paid off was they would drive a nail through the piece of paper. Let me read verse, verse 14 again. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus on the cross canceled the record of debt that stood against us. He took the sin and he took the debt that our sin had caused and the debt that we owed because of our sin and he put it on the cross. And before he died on the cross, what did he shout out? He shouted out, it is finished. Now it is finished is how we translate it. That's actually one Greek word. It is one Greek word and that word is tetelestai. Tetelestai, it's one Greek word. That is an accounting term. It is an accounting term that means paid in full. 
paid in full. And now since Christ has put our sin and the debt of our sin on the cross, and he has paid our debt in full, and now he has credited to us his, our account, his obedience. Now we do not need to run and hide and try to cover ourselves, but now we can approach God with confidence because he has provided us the covering of Christ. And now he adopts us as sons and daughters. And so we can approach God, not as enemies or rebels, but as co-heirs with Christ and as sons and daughters, children of God. And when God saves us, when he opens our eyes to the truth and gives us faith in Christ alone for salvation, he justifies us. He declares us right with him. So now look with me back at the Lord's Prayer, okay? Because now as we look back at this prayer, Jesus is modeling for us a way to pray. He's not saying that we need to go to God daily for justification, okay? No, our justification was a once and for all thing. We were declared right once and for all. So this prayer is not necessarily referring to that, okay? It's not saying that we need to keep coming to God to ask God to forgive us so that we can be re-saved or re-justified. That's not what this is referring to here. It is certainly reminding us of the once and for all justification we have in Christ, but it's not saying every time we sin, we have to get re-saved or re-justified or re-baptized, okay? But Jesus is teaching us to pray this way Because he realizes that although his disciples and all of us, he realizes that, yes, once we're saved, we're still going to sin, and people are still going to sin against us. And so what do we do with that, right? He's showing us how do we handle the sin that we are convicted of? How do we handle the sin that we still commit after we are saved? How do we handle the sin that is committed against us? Here he is showing us. He is showing us how to deal with the sin when we are convicted or confronted by it. What do we do? We pray. We confess. We repent. Father, forgive us our debts. And John talks a little bit more about this in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John 1 verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Followers of Jesus, this is a gracious gift of God that he has given us, a way to deal with the sin when it is uprooted in our hearts. When we follow Jesus, more and more sin gets uprooted in our hearts, and we don't need to sit with it in guilt and shame, but he's showing us what to do with it. What do you do with this sin that just got uprooted in my heart? I don't sit in it and feel guilty and shameful about it. I quickly confess of it, repent of it, turn from it, and hand it over to God. Confession and repentance does not just happen just when you are saved. If you are a follower of Jesus, this should be happening every day of your life. 
Because in this process of following Jesus and becoming more like him, he is tilling up the soil of your heart. More and more sin is going to get exposed. You are going to be convicted of more and more sin, and you are still going to sin. And what do you do with that? You quickly confess, repent, and turn from it. You don't need to sit in it in guilt and shame. Now, when you sin and God convicts you of sin, it doesn't mean that you need to be re-justified or re-saved, but instead quickly confess and repent so that you can have a restored fellowship with God and a restored relationship with God. John's like, I know you church people. You put up a good front, right? But you all still sin. You all still sin. If you say you don't, you are deceiving yourselves. So when you sin, confess it to God. Repent and turn from the darkness. Get back to walking in the light and restore that fellowship with God and the fellowship we can have with one another. Jesus is teaching us to pray, to pray prayers of confession and forgiveness and repentance because the default for all of us is to go back to working for our salvation. Let me describe a typical church person thought process for you, okay? I would say most people who've been in the church for a while, yes, you believe that you're saved by grace through faith. Maybe that was a few years ago. But today you sin. Let's say today that person sins. Instead of confessing of it, repenting of it, and remembering that that record of debt was nailed to the cross, instead of that, no, I'm going to go out and I'm going to memorize like 10 Bible verses, I'm going to go give money to a missionary or charity. Or I'm going to commit myself to being at church every week this month. Or I'm going to go commit myself to a city group. Or I'm going to go get an accountability partner and say, hey, we're going to meet and we'll feel good about it and, and let's do that. And like somehow doing all these good things, those are all good things, but somehow doing all these good things, we feel like we're going to be able to pay back the debt that we owed. We feel like we're going to be able to work for our own salvation. And this is why we need to be reminded of the gospel every day. And this is why church people need the gospel for sanctification, our growth in holiness, just as much as an unbeliever needs the gospel for justification when they are declared right. We need the gospel every day. And so church, my prayer is that this church would be a people that are quick to confess and repent of sin. I believe that we are going to be convicted of sin. I believe that that God is going to shine light deeper and deeper in our hearts and convict us of sin. Sin is going to be exposed because I believe if we are beholding God, if we are putting God and God's word before you, It's going to expose sin. But then, as a church that delights and preaches in the gospel and proclaims and delights in the good news that God saves, my prayer is that there will be this freedom of transparency amongst us that we would not have to put up these church people religious fronts like we've got it all together, but that the gospel would free us to be real and to really deal with the sin that we deal with and that we would be really able to confess and repent to God and confess and repent to one another. And my prayer is that we would, in that process, rest harder and harder on Christ's righteousness, not our own.
And this forgiveness, this radical love and mercy that God has extended through us in Christ, when it does its work in us, when it really does its work in us, it should then flow through us and be extended to others. Look back at Matthew 6. I'm going to read 12 through 15. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, you see, Jesus is not saying that his forgiveness is conditional on if you forgive others. That, that could be at first quick read how you maybe take that wording and how you maybe take that text. But this text needs to be read in light and interpreted in light of the rest of Scripture. And we know that, that, that God's forgiveness of us, it can't necessarily be conditional on our forgiveness or else then salvation is by a work. Salvation is by works, not by grace and not through faith. But no, this passage is instead saying that once we have really, truly experienced the radical debt, pain, love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God, once we have been forgiven of a debt that was unpayable, then that grace will inevitably flow out through you to others to forgive them as well. And Jesus gives us a great illustration of this in Matthew 18. Peter comes to Jesus and asks the Lord, he says, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? And Peter's like, seven times? He thinks he's being pretty generous, right? Seven, you know, it's probably more than most people would. And Jesus is like, why don't you try 70 times seven? Or essentially saying, true disciples don't keep track of how often they've forgiven somebody. And then Jesus goes on to say this in Matthew 18, uh, verse 23. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Or in today's terms, this is like $6 billion, all right? It was an enormous amount that it could never be paid back. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that they had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So this was relatively a small amount, all right, like a few thousand. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. In light of all that we have been forgiven of, who are we not to forgive others when they sin against us? 
a heart that has encountered the radical forgiveness of God will be transformed into a heart that extends that same grace and forgiveness to others. Now, not to say it's always easy, and not to say that we don't need God's help to do it. We most definitely do. But that's why we are to be praying this. We are to be praying, Father, forgive us our debts. In that prayer, not only in confessing this are we dealing with our own sin and restoring fellowship with God, but it is also keeping us centered on the gospel. That in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness, there was a debt that would have taken eternity to pay, but God, who is rich in mercy, love, and grace, took our record of debt and canceled it by nailing it to the cross. In light of that, in light of that, Father, help us forgive one another. Now listen, I realize that some of you have had horrible sin and abuse committed against you. And I don't want to make light of that. And some of you might be thinking, man, there is no way that I could forgive a certain person for what they did to me or what they said to me or what they said about me. And some of you, there might even be people who have sinned against you who aren't even looking for forgiveness. They're not even wanting to be reconciled or forgiven. And what do you do with that? Well, in this passage, to forgive, it means to let go. It means to let go, to send away, to release. And forgiving people can be very, very difficult. And we don't have long to talk about this. We could probably do a whole series just on forgiveness. But let me say this. You aren't going to be able to forgive someone by just trying harder to forgive them. It's not going to happen. When serious sin has been committed against you, you are not going to be able to forgive someone just by trying harder to forgive them or just by trying harder to maybe kind of lessen what they did to you or reason it away. Like they maybe didn't mean it or maybe they didn't realize how much that was going to hurt you. Like that is ultimately not going to allow you to forgive that person. No, I would say instead of just trying harder to forgive someone, why don't you press harder into God and ask him to reveal to you all he has forgiven you? And then press into his character, his nature and his character. Because the good news of the gospel and the character of God is what will ultimately help empower you and equip you to forgive one another. Listen to just one thing about God's character. God is a just God. God is a just God. When he tells you to forgive someone, he's not saying to just sweep it under the rug or just forget about it or just pretend like it never happened. No, he's saying, let it go. Release it to him. He is a just God and he knows what to do with sin. God deals with sin. All sin will be dealt with. It was either dealt with on the cross of Christ or it will be dealt with in eternal judgment, but God is going to deal with sin. No one got away with anything when they did that to you. You can trust that God is a just God. So here's the beautiful thing. When someone sins against you, you don't have to take the justice into your own hands. 
You don't have to retaliate to get even, and you don't have to bury it to grow bitter, but God says, let it go. Release it to him. He can handle it, and he's going to deal with it. So you do not need to be fearful in forgiving others, like, like you're letting them off the hook or they're getting away with some injustice. You don't need to be fearful with forgiving others. You can now be faithful to forgive others and release it to God. Release the sin to God and trust that he is a just God and he will deal with sin. All sin will be dealt with. Prayer connects us to the source of forgiveness. Prayer connects us to the one who cancels debts so that as forgiven people, we don't have to be fearful in forgiving others, but now we can be faithful in extending this radical forgiveness that we have experienced ourselves. Go now, Matthew 6, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now that we have prayed for God to provide, right, for our daily bread, now that we have prayed that God would pardon, that he would forgive, now Jesus encourages us to pray that God would protect. And here we see prayer. It brings us to the one who protects us and delivers us so that when our adversary comes against us, we would not resist trembling in fear, but that we could resist standing strong in the faith, in the faith of the one who protects. For we know that we do have an enemy. He's a defeated enemy, but an enemy nonetheless. And although he can't capture or enslave those of us that are in Christ, he can distract and discourage. And so Jesus says, press into the protection of God. So this verse is carrying the sense of asking that God would protect us from circumstances that would lead us to temptation or lead us into sin. You see, before Christ, we always chose sin. Before Christ, we always chose sin. Even the good things you did were done with the wrong motivation, okay? Before Christ, we all chose sin, but now in Christ, we can resist sin. Jesus was tempted and did not sin, and now by the power of his spirit, he has made it possible for us to resist temptation as well. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a verse probably everyone should memorize, says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. I hope you're noticing that theme in the verses we've been reading. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. Faithful. He will not allow temptations to come our way that by his grace and strength we cannot handle and by his power we cannot endure. Doesn't this, doesn't this encourage you a little bit? Doesn't this lift your heart and maybe give you a little bit of hope this morning that yes, temptations are coming our way, but now in Christ he has empowered us to be able to resist and he's not going to give us anything that we cannot handle by his power. And I hope this encourages your heart that your protection is not ultimately up to you. It's not. I pray your faith is not ultimately guarded by you. 
but that God who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, who is in all places and has all control, that God is the one who protects you and delivers you. And last week, we talked about how we can have a faith in a faithful God who provides, right? Our daily provisions. And we just talked about how we can have faith in a faithful God who forgives. Well, now we can also have faith in a faithful God who protects. 2 Thessalonians 3.3. You'll notice the theme again. It starts out this way. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. The Lord is faithful. Or like the writer of the great modern hymn called My Surety, which we sang last week, he writes, Christ has saved me and Christ has kept me. Glory ever to his name. Christ has saved me and Christ has kept me. Church, the Lord is faithful. We do not need to fear the resistance of the enemy. God will establish us and guard us. Christ who saved you will keep you. And prayer attaches us to the one who protects us and delivers us. And so when our adversary comes against us, we can resist not in fear, but standing strong in faith a faith in our faithful God. Why would we not always run to the one who provides and pardons and protects? Why do we not always run to this great God in prayer and talk with him and communicate with him? Why don't we eagerly run to this God who provides and he forgives and protects? This is such a good God. But often, as we've talked about before, we want to pray. We're just bad at it. And I've been trying to be prayerful these last few weeks. Like, God, what are the things that are keeping us back from always running to you in prayer? I fear sometimes we think that we are bothering God. Or like this idea that, that he needs to be dealing with more important issues and matters in the world than maybe our little cares and worries. And I've, I've felt this way sometimes, right? Like God probably has better things to do than hear all of my little concerns and worries and cares today. But this is a human way of thinking, okay? This is making God like a human being who has limits and can only handle so many conversations at once. God is not like us, and he is not limited by us. And church, he desires to meet with us in prayer, even about the little things. But I fear we sometimes think of him as a grumpy old man, the man upstairs, right? So one of the pleasures I have when I work in the ER is I get to page surgeons in the middle of the night and wake them up out of sleep uh, to get their expertise on a certain uh, you know, situation or patient that might need surgery. It's really, really one of the, the things I love most is waking, waking them up in the middle of the night. They're always happy to talk to me, right? Now, I typically do not page them in the middle of the night unless it's an absolute emergency, Right? Because I'm waking them up out of their sleep, there is this understanding that there better be something serious happening. 
Like, I'm not just calling to check in or kind of chit-chat with them, let them know how my shift is going, things like that, all right? There's an understanding that 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 doesn't happen. But sadly, I believe this is how we communicate with God. This is how we treat our prayer life. Like, we're not going to bother them with the small stuff, right? We don't want to bother them with that little stuff. I can handle that stuff. I'm going to pray just when it's an absolute emergency, when it's a life and death situation, when I absolutely need him. Otherwise, we're just going to leave him alone. But listen, church, that is not what our God is like. That is not what our God is like. And I've used this example before, but I'll use it again. And when I was on my pediatric surgery rotation at Riley, an interesting thing happened to me. I was studying in one of the classrooms for an upcoming test. And trying to cram for the test, I was reading this book that was all about pediatric surgery. And as I was just, you know, uh, flipping through as fast as I could, an older gentleman walked into the room and asked what I was reading. And I showed him, and he came in and asked if I, if I had any questions for him or things he wanted to talk about, things like that. Now, I had never met this gentleman before. I assumed he was just one of the professors that I hadn't met yet. And so he sat down, and we started having a conversation. And I started asking him questions, and I immediately knew once he started speaking, all of this was just so, such good wisdom and knowledge that was pouring out of his mouth. I was trying to write down everything he said exactly, right? He then, with a loving warmth, kind of helped guide me through the book and show me where th- certain things could be found, and he helped show me how to navigate this book that I was trying to study. And there was this warmth in his demeanor, though. Like, not only was he obviously knowledgeable, but it seemed, and not only did it seem like he knew every page of the book, not only did he have this this brilliant wisdom about him, but it also seemed like he was enjoying our conversation. It seemed like he was really delighting in just being there with me. And looking back, I mean, I asked some really stupid questions. Like, I know people say there's no such thing as a dumb... There are dumb questions, right? Like, I asked some really dumb questions, but it even seemed like those, like, kind of gave him a kick. Like, he kind of chuckled, and he didn't make me feel stupid about it, but just kind of got down to my level and talked me through that and helped work out my understanding of the issue at hand. Here's the thing. He sat with me not as someone who felt bothered by me, but that he was actually enjoying being with me. It seemed like he enjoyed helping me understand this book and the material I was trying to study. And so I thanked him, and he left, and a few minutes after that, a few of the residents came running in, and they were out of breath, like seemed like something was really wrong. And they said, he talked to you? And at this point, I was like, uh, yeah, he seemed like a really smart guy. Like, who is that guy? And they were like, you idiot, close your book and look at the name on the cover of the book. (laughs) You see, what I didn't realize was the man I was talking to was a world-renowned surgeon who literally wrote the book on pediatric (laughs) surgery. It was his book. You now see why I felt really dumb later on, some of the questions I asked. But here's my point. We often don't go to God in prayer because we think he's the grumpy old surgeon in the middle of the night that we're paging. We think we're bothering him in the middle of the night with our concerns. But that's not him at all. 
And let me walk you through just the last three weeks as we've been in this 21 days of prayer because there's been some things that my mind is just trying to wrestle with. This idea of God, why do you desire for us to pray? And I feel like there are so many reasons why God wants us to pray. There's not just one reason, okay? And we've been learning some of those. God's been revealing and teaching us through his word that, yes, certainly there is a benefit to being connected to the source of life, right? Having that communication with our source of life. And, yes, prayer humbles us and it strengthens our faith. And, yes, it allows us to live by faith and not by fear. And, yes, prayer helps us to remind us that God is our provider, And yes, that God is the one that forgives us. And God is the one that protects us. And so I can see all those things. Yes, all those reasons are good of why we should pray. But I still just wrestled like there was something more. There's something else why God wants us to pray. Like even before this passage, if God knows what we need before we ask, why does he want us to ask? I mean, anyone else wrestled with this in your mind, just been tangled a little bit? If God knows what we need before we ask, why does he want us to ask? And I struggled with this this month. And I believe God led me to one of the Psalms and helped clear up some of the understanding. Psalm 149, verse 4. God, why do you want us, if you know what we need, even before we ask, why do you want us to ask? Psalm 149, verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. One of the many reasons God desires us to pray is because he takes pleasure in his people. These are delightful conversations to him. You're not bothering him and you're not wasting his time. He, with a loving warmth and understanding, delights in us bringing our cares and our concerns, however foolish and naive or immature they might be. God, who is even greater than a world-renowned surgeon, delights in his people and is ever-present and ready to communicate with his children and help them navigate his book and this life that he authored. And let me tell you, when you are delighting in God, and God is delighting in you, there is nothing awkward or routine about prayer. Nothing awkward or routine about it. It is creation doing what it has longed to do, to communicate with its creator. And I would hope and I will pray that our church and our people would have many, many, many delightful conversations with God. And so church, in 2018, may we be a people that pray, that pray. Prayer is communicating with God, us delighting in him and him delighting in us. It frees us from living in fear and allows us to live by faith. So let's pray together.
Father, we do desire to be a people that pray. God, we want you. We want more of you. We know that we need you. Our souls, Lord, they long for you. They long to communicate with you. They long to have conversations with you. But God, oftentimes we are just so bad at it. So please help. Please help, God. Whatever's standing in the way of people going to you, God, I ask that you would uh, wipe those things out, that you would reveal truth to us, God, that you would take out anything that is hindering us going to you in prayer. And God, I ask that through our times of prayer that you would continue to cast out our fear and strengthen our faith, God. Would you please do this? For your glory, would you cast out our fear? Would you cast out all the decisions we make in life based out of fear, God? Would you just crush those, God? And would you allow us to live by faith? And God, would you reawaken our hearts to you? Many of us in here, we've grown up in church God, we know that you love us, but we often forget that you like us. Would you awaken our hearts to the truth that you delight in your people? God, help us delight in you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.